0: Welcome to the Hazard Ground podcast. As always, each and every week, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Before we get to this week's episode, our usual reminder, make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Great way to keep up with each of our guests each week, what we have going on. Guests that are coming up and whatever promotions we have on the hazard ground. I want to remind you guys that Knife Country USA is one of our newest sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Knife Country. They've got the largest selections of knives, cutlery, and accessories on the Internet. With over 30,000 models from more than 500 manufacturers, Knife Country USA is confident they've got the perfect item for you. In addition to that tremendous selection, no other company can beat Knife Country USA's commitment to exceptional customer service. The owner of Knife Country USA personally guarantees he's going to do whatever necessary to make sure you are 100% satisfied with your Knife Country USA purchase. Right now, Hazard Ground listeners get a special discount on all Knife Country USA purchases. Go to our website, HazardGround.com, and click on the Knife Country USA banner on the sponsors page. You enter the coupon code HAZARD1, that's right, HAZARD and the number 1, at checkout to get 15% off your entire order. That's HAZARD1 coupon code to get 15% off your entire order at checkout when you click on the Knife Country USA banner on the Hazard Ground sponsors page. Speaking of hazardground.com, our website, if you're an Amazon shopper, that's exactly where you want to start. Why? It's really simple. Go to hazardground.com and then click on the Amazon banner on the main page, and guess what? Every purchase you make with Amazon, just do your normal shopping, by the way. But whatever purchase you make, we get a kickback from Amazon, and we take that money and donate it directly to some of the great charities that you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. So it's an easy way for you to do your Amazon shopping and give back to veterans at exactly the same time. Again, all you got to do: go to our website hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner, do your normal shopping and you will be helping veterans everywhere across the country just by doing Amazon shopping. That is an amazing deal, and we're certainly very happy with our partnership with Amazon and Knife Country USA. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a former Marine sergeant who was wounded in Iraq, losing both legs, spent over two years in his recovery to walk once again. He is Steve Kiernan here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, a lot to get to uh, even in your post-Marine career as currently you're a short story and essay writer, uh, but the the details of your recovery and your journey back to walking again uh, certainly one uh, of a story that we want to hear. That said, uh, let's start way back at the beginning and why you joined the Marine Corps. Oh, man, it
1: feels like so long ago now. I was in high school. I think I had been thinking about it for a while, um, and... You know, I think uh, 9-11 happened, like, so it kind of, like, solidified, you know, my decision. Um, I turned 17 in 2004, and I enlisted, like, uh, like a week or two later.
0: Where uh, were you on 9-11? Where, what do you remember about
1: that? I was a freshman in high school. Um I remember getting up in the morning. I got up I lived on the west coast. Um so yeah, I believe if I remember correctly it happened around nine in the morning on the east coast, so yeah. like six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I woke up early because I had I took an extra class during high school, um, that started at seven in the morning. So I was up early anyway and you know my normal routine. Routine. I would just get up and like eat some cereal and turn on the news. I uh, got ready for school. And I remember flipping through all channels and kept seeing the same thing. You know, one of the uh, one of the towers was on fire, and I, I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, "Oh wow, there's a you know there's a fire in New York. It's crazy." And then, which as I was sitting there watching that, the second plane came in and hit the other tower, and then that's when I realized like this wasn't just fire. It wasn't an accident. Uh, so that got my attention. And then I remember we were on, I, we carpooled to school with the neighbors. And as we were riding, we were listening to the radio and we were listening to the reports over the radio. And as we were driving to school, I think the first tower collapsed. So it was just a real, you know, like surreal experience, just.
0: Did any of that solidify your decision? I mean, w- was that like a crystallizing moment for you?
1: I would say it definitely was. Like, I, I was probably like 80% going to join the military anyway. But when that happened, it definitely, you know, that's, I decided, you know, I'm definitely going to find out if this is what I'm going to do, do my, you know, do my part.
0: Did you tell I your parents that? Of,
1: um, Not after 9 11. Uh, I had always, they had always kind of known, like, I had this, you know, kind of a normal kid fascination with the military, and, you know, they knew of my, my uncle was someone I looked up to, um, so they kind of, they kind of knew anyway, uh, and then I remember, I also thought a lot about my grandfather, who was in World War II, uh, he was on Wake Island when it was attacked by the Japanese, um, I think it was simultaneously attacked at that the same time Pearl Harbor was. Right. Um, so he was there um and fought there for a couple of weeks until the island surrendered and then he was a POW for the remainder of the war. So I always kinda of had this uh feeling that you know I, I kinda of had to live up to that, you know ideal. You know, my you know my grandfather, you know, did his part when
0: that makes sense I mean when, I I think that uh, the the ties there are obviously strong. So tell me about when you actually signed the papers. Did you do it before your 18th birthday? Did you do it with your parents there? Or did you just kind of, you know, make this decision with them?
1: Um, Well, it was getting close to my 17th birthday. I told them, you know, this is what I want to do, and I want to do it soon. Um, So I think a few weeks before my 17th birthday, I went to the recruiter's offices. I went and talked to the Marines and the Army. Uh, I don't think I talked to the Navy or the Air Force. <laughs> but with a you know a brief flirtation with the Army, I came back and decided to join the Marine Corps. And uh, I think I turned 17, July 15 was my birthday. And then I believe in, it was like August 1st, August 2nd, I went down to MEPS and signed all my paperwork and did all that.
0: All right, so you head um, off to boot camp. Um, any expectations going in?
1: Uh, you know, I kind of didn't really know what to expect. You know, I ever to see like full metal jackets are like, Oh wow, is that what it's going to be like? And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty true to the experience, but you know, you can never really understand what it's like to get there. And you got your drum instructors screaming in your face. Uh, it was definitely a huge wake up call for me. Uh, I finished high school a semester early so I could leave for boot camp sooner. Uh, I left in March 2005. So I get there basically, you know, 17 year old, basically still in high school. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I got three drill instructors screaming in my face all the time, yelling. And that's something I had never experienced before. So it was quite, quite shocking. And, um, there's definitely probably you know, two weeks of what the hell did I just find myself for? You know, this was a huge mistake. I don't want to be here. Yeah. You know, that those same feelings that pretty much everyone goes through.
0: Did you think that you ever really were going to quit, or you 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 always knew you would stick it out?
1: I was. I knew I was going to stick it out. Um, mostly because when I talked to my recruiter, uh, luckily, you know, one of the things he didn't lie to me about. <laughs> was, uh, you know, the fastest way to get through boot camp is to just get through it, you know, just power through it. You know, some people, you know, they try to fake injuries or purposely get themselves injured. That way they think that they'll get discharged and sent home. uh, When in reality, they just keep you there until you're healed and then recycle you and you do it all over again. So I was definitely, I mean, I was scared and nervous, but I never really thought about quitting. It was just this is something I have to get through and once I get through it, you know, I'll be a Marine and then everything will be fine.
0: All right, so you finished boot camp. Uh what time frame are we talking about and what's
1: next? Uh see so yeah, I finished boot camp. Let's see, March, June. I think we graduated yeah, I graduated like June first, March oh May. No, May. Graduated May.
0: Of two thousand
1: five? Yeah, two thousand five. Okay. Um, then we go home, you know, on boot leave for like a week. You know, you see your family, you get all your pictures and all that. Uh, I went to my high school graduation and got to wear my dress blues. That was pretty cool. Uh, and then showed up to Camp Pendleton for school of infantry because I was going in the infantry and began, began training there. And that was about two months long. Right.
0: Let me ask you real quick, when you went back to your high school in your dress blues, did did your classmates say anything to you? Were they impressed? Were they like, why'd you do this? What, what sort of reaction did you
1: get? I think they were impressed. Um, you know, before I left, a lot of people were like, man, you're never going to make graduate grade in blue campus. too hard. you're not going to make it. Uh, just because I wasn't, I was never like super super fit or super athletic. I played football for a couple of years until I broke my collarbone. Uh, so I don't really blame them for that. Right. <laughs> I wasn't some super stud going into it. And I think I probably only weighed like 140 pounds or something. So I was just like this skinny kid. And in high school, especially, you think of Marines, you think of tough guys, you know. So they were surprised when I came back and I'm like, oh, crap, you know. You actually fucking made it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Was that a uh, a good feeling for you? It definitely was. It was definitely, you know, I kind of coming back home, you know, I'm here to prove everyone wrong. I fucking did it. Uh, (laughs) What are you going to do now? That's kind of what my feeling was. You know, I went and did something badass. You guys haven't done shit. I thought I was, you know, super fucking badass at that point. You know, I was just a boot straight out of the camp. Did anybody? One ribbon.
0: Did anybody think you were crazy because we're in the middle of a war, two wars right now? And anybody like, dude, why, why do you want to do that?
1: There was a couple people who did. Um, you know, I grew up in California, Northern California, so it's you know, pretty liberal place. Um, we had uh, students protesting the war in 2003 when it was going on. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like growing up in Texas or, you know, one of those super conservative patriotic right. type places. Um, but it was mostly, it wasn't like, because, Oh, you're going to turn into a baby killer or anything. They were just like more worried about me They're like, no, you know, we don't want you to get through. but for the most part, everyone was encouraging. Um, I think it had still had a lot to do because, you know, were still pretty close to 9/11 at that point. It was only, only we say, four no, years removed. Yeah, but it was still definitely a very recent in our minds. So I think, despite some of the, you know, anti-war feelings of the area, a lot of them still harbored this, you know, sense of duty and patriotism. So they understood.
0: All right, so you finished uh, Camp Pendleton School of Infantry. Where's your first duty assignment, and uh, how did things go from there?
1: Yeah, that was kind of an interesting story. Um, so I signed up to be infantry. That's just what I wanted to do. My uncle was in the infantry. Uh, he was a machine gunner, and oh, that was pretty fucking cool. Um, but when I was in boot camp, um, we all, everyone who was infantry got sent to this presentation for the Presidential Support Unit. Um, so it was Presidential Security. Um, so they gave this presentation on. Uh, uh, I guess the two duties split off into uh, there's a Camp David element of Marines who guard uh, the Camp, Camp David presidential retreat up in Maryland. And then there's another one split off into uh, WACA, which is Lighthouse Communications Agency. And uh, those Marines guard communications equipment uh, whenever the president travels. So they gave this whole presentation that sounds really cool to, you know, 17-year-olds of guys in, like, SWAT gear doing CQB stuff and, you know, oh, you're going to get a top secret security clearance and you're going to do, you know, you're going to go to seer school and ranger school and you're going to do all this cool shit. So I was like, that wow, sounds pretty awesome. So I stuck around for the presentation and then there's like a screening process. You know, anyone who's ever been arrested, leave anyone who has a history of, you know, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, you know, stand up and leave. Um, And then there, then that, you know, that drops the pool down (laughs) to about 10% at that point. And then based on whatever the needs were, you either go to, White House communications agency, or you go up to Camp David. I went up to Camp David and spent about a year, year and a half there doing uh, presidential security, um, guarding the president and cabinet members, uh, family, obviously. That's a pretty cool assignment. A lot. Right. Yeah, it's cool. Um, we did a lot of cool training. Um, we had our own. Uh, firing range. We had two firing ranges that we could use. Uh, and our company gunny always made these like cheaper deals with, you know, other units or other members of the battalion. Cause we're still technically part of, uh, and I in DC. Um, so they would still get like a battalion an infantry battalion allotment of ammo every year, but they would never use it because they're too busy doing, uh, you know, parades, uh, ceremonial stuff. So our company would get all the ammo <laughs> and so we, you know, a hundred of us would shoot a battalion's worth of ammo every year. So that was a lot of fun, got a lot of good shooting training done, um, and work very closely with secret service. So it was cool to kind of see how that all and and kind of behind the scenes of everything that goes on to ensure the security of the president, which is a lot.
0: Okay, so when does that whole tour end, and and how quickly do you get to your deployment?
1: Let's see. I believe I got there in March of 2006, and then I got my orders to my unit, which ended up being Third Battalion, Sixth Marines, out at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, actually, I went to some I went to some schools first, right before I left, and then uh, went and checked in, I think, in November of 2007. Um, And then we deployed to Iraq in, I think, at the end of March 2008.
0: All right, so that's pretty quick. When you went to Iraq, uh, what what was your mission? What were you guys told?
1: Uh, let's see this is like right at the tail end of the surge. So we went to uh Fallujah. We relieved uh we did the rip with uh three five who was there, and we took over uh security for the city. Um they had spread us out um instead of living on like back at Camp Avria, which is where our battalion headquarters was. They had our platoon split up in different uh Police stations throughout the city, so Michael Toon, we were in uh, I think it was Southwest Belusia, which was right along I don't know if you've ever been there, but yeah, um, uh, do you remember the big like flower factory in the southern part of the city, like right along the river
0: was, like 10 story
1: tall. yeah, uh, yeah, our police station was pretty much right next to that, okay. So we were close to the river and probably about four blocks, five blocks south of Route Fran, which run, uh, which basically went east to west and cut the city from in half. And we were responsible, um, for patrolling, uh, pretty much the whole southwest portion of the city. Um, and we lived in a Iraqi police station. Uh, They lived on the bottom floor. Uh, we lived right up on the top. Uh, We would do joint patrols with them. Um, Though there was a National Guard squad who also lived with us, um, they did more of the joint patrols. Um, That was more of their responsibility. Um, Though sometimes we would grab a couple of IPs just to go on patrol with us. Um, We didn't really have any, like, set mission. It was just patrolling two to three times a day, walking around. Uh, we'd stop and you know conduct surveys of you know what people needed uh how was the electricity you know, how they get water, uh, stuff like that right, and then we would also do we like raids at night time for or um, usually looking for explosives or i d material, or we'd get word that there was a you know suspected high value target living here, and we'd go check it out. Uh, Usually we'd get there and there'd be, like, no one there, or uh, we didn't really find a whole lot. Later in the deployment, um, after I had gone home, um, Michael Tinn found a huge weapons cache, uh, mostly because somehow it had caught on fire and it started cooking off rounds. Uh, So once the fire died down, they went to the building and checked it out, and they found just like... Dozens of, you know, RPKs and off sniper rifles, thousands of ammo, hundreds of, like, mortar shells. I think there was a huge, like, surface-to-air missile that was in there. Um, And it was right next to an Iraqi police checkpoint. So we found it pretty hard to believe that uh, they didn't know what was in that building.
0: Steve, you are just a a couple weeks into your deployment um, before you get injured. Tell me about the morning of May 4th. Is it a normal day? Is it a, a day that anything stood out as, as out of the ordinary? I mean, take me through the events and when you get up that morning before you uh, you head outside the wire.
1: So I think we had been there for like just over a month. Um, and we were just kind of just settling down, you know, finally getting into the routine of doing the patrols. You know, we kind of – we had a pretty good idea of our AO um, – and I was pretty comfortable doing patrols without even needing a map, you know, because I could, I could recognize all the streets. And I knew, you know, I was getting to know it like it was my own neighborhood, right? So we were just walking down the street. Nothing seemed, nothing seemed really out of place. We were walking down, what was the name of the road? I think it was Isaac, Route Isaac, um, which was just uh, a small street in other than Fallujah that our patrol base was on. And there's a big uh, a market that ran along it. You know, there's like uh, roll-up shops where they got bushers out and people selling hookah and stuff like that. Uh, everybody was out. You know, no one was, you know, normally, you know, you get the kind of the cliche. There was no activity. Everything was just spooky. But... right we didn't get that feeling at all. So we went out, we did our patrol. Uh, It was like, maybe like a two hour patrol, nothing super long. And then we were coming back. Um, We were probably maybe 100, 200 yards from our patrol base. Like we were right at the end of the patrol. I was already thinking about the air conditioning in my room and taking off my flack and just standing there and be like, oh God, Cause it was like hundred, this was 120 degrees or something. Um, let me think. I remember walking around. I was, uh, I was on point. And I look, I remember looking over to my right and there was like these two little girls playing. And I think their dad was sitting on the curb next to them. And I kind of like looked over and waved. I like, okay, was going, and then it was like, bam. Uh, It really, I remember it being super hot. Like, it just got really hot, really quick. Like, uh, I don't know, like all of a sudden you got put in a microwave and just turn it on. Uh, It felt like, you know, getting the wind knocked out of you. Especially if I remember, I remember hitting the ground. I remember the wind coming out and just slamming on the ground and my chest hurting from, you know, the concussion and my organs all bumping around inside me. And my legs were just like on fire. I thought I was on fire. And I looked down and then I could see they're all just like mangled. Um I think I think my my right leg was bent was bent kind of up and towards me. Uh and this really like corkscrew pattern and then the shin bone was gone and I could see uh, like bone tissue and Ligaments or whatever dangling out.
0: Did that make you freak out?
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I was like, holy shit, you know. Um, And then I looked down at my left. I remember seeing my left foot. My boot had been blown off. I just remember seeing my white sock. I couldn't move that foot, but I could could just see my white sock. So I'm like, you know, I can't really move it, but, you know, it seems fine. I don't see any blood there.
0: So literally Um, you had your boot blown off you.
1: Yeah, um, but it was weird. It was uh, my right leg, which was totally mangled and just totally just, it was really hard to explain. It was pretty nasty looking. That boot was still on, but my other leg looked perfectly fine. Boot's gone. I thought, oh, well, you know, at least that leg's okay. I found out later, like when I woke up, that my heel on that leg had been blown off and was just kind of like dangling from the Achilles system. but uh, I couldn't see that.
0: How long did it take you to realize like what had happened? Like, did you step on something? Did was it an, a, a trigger that or, or anything like that?
1: Uh, well, I knew pretty much instantly that it was an ID that had gone off. Um, but
0: you had stepped on it, correct? I didn't
1: know. I didn't, I didn't really think about that, like, how I triggered it. I was just thinking, holy shit, I just got blown up. My leg's all fucked up. And then I started thinking, you know, my guys, they're going to know what to do. Um, and I also started thinking immediately, like, are we going to be attacked? <laughs> because I was just, like, out in the middle of the street, laying there, and I was like, oh, I hope they don't run to get me, and we start getting shot at it. You know, just leave me out here.
0: Who's the first person uh, who gets to you?
1: First person who got to me was my buddy Evan. Um, I think he was right behind me in the patrol. Um, he got to me really quick. Um, it was actually kind of funny. I, I, even though I saw my saw my leg, I didn't really. It still didn't like register like how serious it was. Um, but he ran up, and I, I remember looking up at him, and he was just like, he stood there for a second, and was just like, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> just like, and I was like, "Oh, great! I guess I am fucked up now." Yeah,
0: I, I was gonna say it doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence at that point.
1: I know, I know. I saw it. I got a little worried right there.
0: All right. So, what else did he say um, to you after that?
1: <laughs> then he dropped down um, right next to me and he's like, "You're gonna be fine, man. Don't worry about it." And he started pulling out my I.F.A.C., um, getting all the bandages out, um, calling for the corpsman. Um, so he was there. He was just, you know, it was like such a mess, really, especially with that one leg that as he I'm starts kind of as
0: he starts working on you, what are you thinking at this point in time? Do you feel like better? Are you at ease? Are you in shock
1: at this point? I'm definitely i'm still shoot a lot of pain, so I'm mostly just like focusing on the pain and I'm just like pissed off um, later on when i I'm in the Humvee, that's when I start to get kind of worried um but anyway, so, yeah, he's just trying to, you know, bandage me up as best he could until a corpsman runs up. Um, he gets to me, and then he starts doing his thing. You know, he, he, like, hits me with morphine, but I think he said he gave me, like, three shots of morphine, but I don't remember feeling any of it. Um, and he goes and starts putting tourniquets tourniquet on my legs. He's wrapping bandages and gauze around everything, um... And they're just trying to, like, reassure me, like, you're going to be fine, dude. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And we laid there for what seemed like an hour. Um, it was probably only, like, 15 minutes, but mm-hmm. it just seemed, like, so long. And I'm just laying there. I and mean, at this point, I'm just kind of, like, dealing with the pain. So I'm just, like, laying there quietly, like, this sucks. And it's fucking hot as hell out. I'm laying in the middle of the street. Um we were waiting on our mobile platoon or mobile squad section to uh, get to us with the Humvees that could medevac me out.
0: I mean, you were, um, you I said you were first. like 200 yards from your patrol base, so you didn't have far to go. Right. I mean.
1: Yeah. Uh, but we didn't have uh, like there was no like landing zone for helicopter to come get us. Cause it was like right in the middle of the city. Gotcha. Um, so taking me there, like wouldn't really have done anything.
0: Um, right. So when the Humvee rolls so up,
1: mobile.
0: when the Humvee, yeah, tell me about that. When the Humvee rolls up and you get loaded in the back.
1: All right, Yeah, so originally they actually put me in the back of a Iraqi police truck because oh. uh, yeah, soon after we got blown up, um, an, an Iraqi patrol was coming by to like check it out, and you know my guys were like, you know they were just focused on getting me out of there as soon as possible. So like we're not going to wait on mobile. We're just going to throw you in the back of this truck. So they put me in the bed of the truck and my buddy Ethan jumps in the driver's seat. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm like, this is a fucking bad idea. <laughs> um, mostly cause I'm thinking we're going to come flying up on, uh, I think we're going to TQ was where the, uh, camp to Um, which is like, kind of like halfway between Ramadi and Fallujah. Um, that was where the big, like, medical center was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we're going to come flying up there on a Iraqi police truck and the fucking guards and the shoot it. Um But almost as soon as we were about to pull out, mobile pulled up with the Humvees, so then they pulled me out and threw me in the back of a high-back Humvee. And then we... Uh, they pretty much hauled ass. Like, they were... They were actually driving so fast that one of the Humvee's engines, like, just gave out and died. Um, so they just left it. <laughs> they left the, uh, you know, the guys in the Humvee, they stayed with the Humvee, which also had our, uh, our battalion legal officer was with them for some reason. So our JAG, I don't know why, but he was there, just happened to be on the patrol that day.
0: So you said so they left before... You said before that you were in the Humvee and, you know, that's when you started to get a little bit uh, uneasy. What was going on that made you uneasy?
1: Well, we got in the Humvee, um... It it seemed like, you know, the guys around me were getting a little bit more desperate. Um, I think I was bleeding a lot. Um, They couldn't quite stop the bleeding. Um, And just because the way the wounds were, it was hard to get them all bandaged and covered up, um... I think they tried to tighten down the tourniquets on my legs and one of them actually broke because it tightened it too much. Uh, and I we were bouncing around in the Humvee and my doc couldn't get an IV in my arm. So, <laughs> he had me drink the IV. Oh, which really? I don't think, oh, did taste it didn't so bad. Oh. Because, you know, he couldn't get it in my arm so he was just getting it in me somehow. You know, he was doing something. Um, he was doing his best, you know. Um, so I drank it, and it was just so gross, you know? I wouldn't recommend it ever. Uh, and what? I remember getting really... Go ahead. At that point, I, I remember getting, like, cold because I was losing so much blood, so I was just, like, freezing. Um, I started getting drowsy, and my eyes were, you know, falling asleep, and uh, Evan, you know, kept, like, smacking me, like, stay awake, man. Um, that's what I was thinking about. I'm not sure I'm gonna make it through this. You know, like I'm gonna bleed out in the back of the Humvee. At
0: what and point? Coming. At what point do you end up like passing out? Like, do, is it when? Do you remember actually getting to the medical hospital, or was it in the back of the Humvee?
1: Yeah, I was actually. I managed to stay conscious the whole time. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they, they did a good job keeping me keeping me awake. They talked about using a uh, quick clot on my wounds, <laughs> and that kind of like perked me up because I know that shit fucking hurts, and I was like, no, no, I'm fine, don't do that, don't do that, I'm fine. Uh, so then they, they didn't do it, luckily. Um, and it was just kind of like a crazy, mad dash. They get the TQ, um, the one of the Humvees died, so they just left it and the guys had to sit there by themselves for a couple hours until someone else came and then um somehow we i don't know it's like traffic and <laughs> someone had to slam on the brakes and our humvee ended up slamming right at the back of the humvee in front of us so everyone kind of like fell of me uh but we eventually make it we get into the hospital um i remember being carried in they dropped me on the bed then immediately all the doctors and nurses there they're just there's like four or five of them and they're just cutting off one of your clothes they're talking to you trying to get your name um they're asking me to wiggle my toes and my big messed up leg somehow you know it's all bent back so my foot is actually you know really hovering over my stomach instead of down near my feet where it's supposed to be and I can still wiggle my toes on that foot I remember that like Wow, was that strange? I, yeah, so I thought, you know, maybe it's not that bad. So I was <laughs> not my toes, that's fine. Um, and then I tried to wiggle the toes on my other foot, which I thought was fine, and I couldn't do it. And that's when I kind of realized, like, oh, that leg's probably more messed up then. And I realized... So I'm there doing all that, and then I kind of look over to my left, and I see another one of my Marines being operated on on the other table. And I was like, holy shit, what the hell? I, I thought I had been the only one who had been wounded. Um, but one of my saw gunners, uh, he had his, his arm had been snapped in half. So like his forearm, um, kind of like broke in the middle and his arm was just kind of flopping around like his hand and wrist. Um, kind of like, I don't know if you ever seen that Harry Potter movie where they remove the bones in his arm and just kind of flops around really weird. <laughs> he, that's what he said it looked like. Um, and then, uh, I guess... Later on, I found out that um, I think they had used an old uh, mortar shell and dropped it in a garbage dumpster, and that's where they hit the, the IED. And then I think it was remotely detonated by someone. Wow. Um, so when it blew up, um, either the dumpster or a big piece of it blew off and um, hit my buddy, my saw gunner, his name was Sam, um, hit him right in the, the helmet, and it snapped his kevlar helmet in half. Somehow it didn't knock him down, though. Like, he was still standing. Um, but he was really dazed and out of it with a bad concussion, and his arm was all messed up. But I didn't know that. Like, I saw him, and I saw like his eyes closed, and I thought he was hurt really bad. So I just started, like, calling out for his name. Like, Sam, Sam, okay, what are you doing? And then uh, that's when uh, I think the doctors put me out. And uh can't remember. I think I woke up. In Baghdad, like a day later, um, yeah, I mean, I woke up in the just remember like a dark room. Um, I think there were, I had like i had been intubated, so I remember them pulling that out, and then I was just asking about uh, Sam. That's all I wanted to know. I was like, oh, Sam, where's he? Where's he? Is he okay? Is he okay? And they wouldn't tell me anything, um, so I was getting really worried, um, and they were trying to do a bunch of stuff, you know, they're try to, like, change my bandages, and, um, you know, whatever other nurse-doctor things they were trying to do. And I remember one point a nurse came in with a phone, and she's like, your mom's on the phone, she wants to talk to you to make sure you're okay, and I was like, I don't want to fucking talk to her, all I want to know is if Sam is okay, um, so eventually after, I don't know how long, but after me just, you know, complaining, of, they finally brought him into the room, and he walked in, he was, you know, he was pretty, he seemed fine at that point, his arm was all wrapped in a sling, um, he's like, hey, I'm okay, man, I'm doing all right, so then I, was, I calmed down, and I was like, all right, all right, that's fine.
0: Did you end up talking to your mom, or no?
1: No, I don't think I talked to her until I got back to Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland.
0: Did you ask? So, did you ask any of the doctors at that point in time what the status of your legs was?
1: Uh, when, I, when I woke up, I saw. You know, I could look down and I see that they had amputated.
0: Oh, they had already cut them um, off.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, when they got you know, the TQ, they were both just too damaged um, to even try and save at that point. So they just, uh, amputated as little as they had to, um, and then sent me to Baghdad. Was, uh,
0: was that like a, a freaky sight when you looked down and you're like, okay, my legs are gone.
1: I don't know. Like I, I, I didn't freak out. Like I remember looking down and saw they were gone and I was just like, all right, my legs are gone. Um, and I just kind of accepted it right there. Like I didn't dwell on it. Um... It was just, you know, there's nothing I can do to change it. So. Right.
0: So what happens next? How long are you in Baghdad before they evacuate out?
1: I think they just kept me there for a day. Um, then they, I believe, they put me back under, back out, uh, back to, They put me to sleep, and then I woke up. I think a couple days later in Germany.
0: Okay, and when you wake up in Germany, you're like, now where the hell am I? Like, what are you thinking and feeling?
1: Yeah, I kind of got, uh, when I woke up, I think there was uh, like a Marine liaison who was there and he kind of explained, you're in Germany, you're going to fly out to back home to the United States tomorrow, um, you know, your family will be there waiting for you, and uh, that was pretty much it, uh, and they couldn't give me, they couldn't give me like pain meds because something to do with my, um, you know, I was in a ton of pain. Um, so they gave me, like, two tuberculosis, and they're like, that's all we can give you. And they also couldn't give me, like, any water or anything to eat because I was going to have surgery pretty much as soon as I got to, back to the States. Mm-hmm. So they just, like, swabbed my mouth with, like, lemon, a <laughs> lemon-flavored swab to, like, keep my mouth from getting dry. Did, uh, did
0: they tell you what they were going to do? As far as surgery was concerned, did did you get a prognosis or anything like that? Like,
1: no, they didn't. I don't mean, think they knew. You know, they were just, you know, in Germany, we were just there. They were just kind of like keep us stable um, and ready for transport. Um, so that's just pretty much what they were focused on. I think they changed my bandages a couple times. Um, I think they cleaned me off with uh, like rags and stuff because I couldn't shower or anything. Right. Um, okay. And then so the next day, go ahead. I got loaded up onto a, I don't know what it was, a big Air Force plane, C 130 or C 5 or something, with a bunch of other wounded guys. Um, a bunch of, uh, I think, just uh, you know guys coming from Afghanistan and coming from Iraq. We were all flying out together. Um, they were just big rows of beds that were stacked like five or six high. And I remember being put in there and then the next guy was laid on top of me and it was so close. Um, it was just like a couple inches from my nose. Like, that's how close we were stacked up. And then they had some, like, the walking wounded were sitting on benches of the plane. Um, and then throughout the whole flight, they had nurses going around, checking on all of us. And, um, Yeah, I think I remember someone that had to perform, like, CPR on because he had a heart stopped or something. I remember watching it. I don't remember if they...
0: And none of this at any point in time, like, overwhelms you? I mean, did you cry? Did you get upset? Did you, like, holy crap, this sucks? I mean, what what sort of emotions are are you going through?
1: That plane ride was definitely, like, going through hell for me. Um, you know, combined, I was just in a ton of pain. It's kind of like overwhelming situation. You're seeing all these other, you know, wounded guys around you, guys like me. you know, way, more, way worse than me, you know, guys who weren't wounded as bad. I um, And it was a long flight. And you have to be awake for it. They can't put you to sleep. So it was like seven or eight hours of just torture. And there's nothing they can really do for you. I remember... Coughing and throwing up from airsickness. Uh, I I, they keep you strapped down too, so you got straps across your chest and legs and arms, so you can't move at all. Um, all I could do was just turn my head to the side and try to throw up over the side. And I feel bad for all the guys underneath me because it probably all like dripped down on top of them. Um, yeah, it was.
0: It's a pretty grim picture to say the least. Okay. So you get back to Bethesda Naval, um, kind of get me through the next couple of steps in this whole process.
1: Yeah. So I get there, um, my family's there. So, you know, I see them, uh, my then girlfriend who, uh, she's my wife now, but she's my girlfriend then she was there as well. So I got to see her, which was cool. Um, but then, um, pretty soon, pretty quickly, I don't know if it was like later that day, um, or the next day, you know, the doctors came to me and kind of explained a little more that they had to, they had to amputate more of my legs, um, just to, because, um, they wanted to amputate above all the wounds, um, that way I wouldn't have any problems with like prosthetics or infections. Um, cause I think originally my left foot had been amputated in a and then on my right side um they had amputated up to my knee um so i still had my like full femur um but the doctor said that um the end of my femur down where my knee was was just too messed up to save so they had to amputate um above my knee um which removed you know you know the, the end of my femur so i had it above I was going to be an above-knee amputee on my right side. And then on my left, um, they said they were going to amputate further up, like halfway up my shin for a below-knee below amputation um, because it would, they said it would make it using prosthetics easier for me. Um, so they did that. I went and got that surgery done. And then it was – I think they'd, you know, they'd do some cleaning – they wash out the wounds and stuff. It's another procedure. Um, So I was at Bethesda Naval Hospital for, I think, I think it was there for a month. And then they transferred me over to Walter Reed Army Hospital because that's where all the amputee stuff was. They didn't do that um, at Bethesda at that time. They moved it all over there. So then I was inpatient at Walter Reed for another uh, month and a half or so, two months maybe, until I was able to, like, I was healed up more. Um, Like, I still had stitches in my legs, but the wounds had been pretty much healed up. Um, So once that was, you know, under control, then they moved me over to the you know, the patient barracks where all the patients lived, you know, once we got discharged from being inpatient, which was an old, used to be an old hotel on the base, called the Malone House. Um, But they just got so much overflow of patients that they turned it into patient housing. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, you're living, it it was like a normal hotel room. And that's where, then I began all my physical therapy and you know I lived there for about 2 years until I got medically discharged in June 2010 is when I got retired All
0: right so uh give me the rehab process and getting fitted for prosthetics and everything else and you know finally until you get to take those first steps again
1: Yeah well for so the first like couple of months it's you're uh Kind of like building up your core strength a lot, and just rebuilding um, yourself because being in the hospital and I heard your body going through so much trauma. Like I lost all my muscle mass. I was basically just skin bones. You know, you know, combining you know all the weight I lost and muscle, and then my legs being irritated. I think I was like maybe like 98 pounds, and I used to be like 160 pounds. So you're really just kind of, like, rebuilding yourself, um, trying to build up strength again and your endurance. And also, um, your center of gravity shifts. Like, normally for, you know, if you got your full limbs, your center of gravity is down near your waist. Right. But when uh, you have your legs amputated, it's more, like, up in your chest. So for, like, a month, like, I would try to sit up, and then I would immediately just fall back down. Like, I couldn't even hold myself up. Um... For about a month until I was able to build core strength, and then I could, I could, uh, you know, get my balance down. So after a couple months, you know, your strength training and building up your core, getting used to the balance, you're also letting your legs heal. They they swell up like really large. But I think my my calf on my left side, um, it had swelled up so it was about as wide as my thigh. So you have to wait for all that swelling to go down before you can get fitted for prosthetics. Right. Um, which for me was, I think it was about six six months. Actually, no, I think it was quicker than that. Like, I, I actually healed up. I got lucky. I didn't have any infection. Um, the doctors in Iraq were really good about cleaning out all that stuff. Um, so I didn't have to deal with infection, which is a, a huge problem for a lot of guys um, a lot of guys will show up as you know they only had like their feet amputated but because of the infection they end up having more and more amputated so you know they start as below the knee and then they end up above the knee um, for me that was not a problem so I got I got blown up May May 4th I want to say by August that was when I got my first prosthetics, and my mom was there. We, she ended up staying with me for about six weeks, living living with me and taking care of me, um, which was really tough on her because she had to, you know, leave her job for six weeks. She wasn't making money, and still had all these bills to pay. Um, but the uh, Summer Five Fund, which is an organization that helps out you know, wounded Marines and their families, um, you know, they really helped her out a lot and helped pay for her bills and air, tra- air travel. So she was able to stay with me. Right. Um, so I've always been pretty thankful for them for that. Um, it was also kind of funny because about a year before, you know, once a year they did the big CFC, uh, campaign, right. right. And everyone donates part of their paycheck to uh, you know, to something, and I remember I donated the temper five fund, and I donated probably like I don't to donate two hundred dollars because I think I just got promoted to corporal, and I was like, you know, I got you know I got a bigger paycheck now, so I want to you know give back, you know, not knowing that less than a year later I would be using you know that same organization to help my family out. Um, so yeah, so she stayed with me, my prosthetist she she's awesome i still to see her now um she's still working still works there um she didn't know how tall i was before so she just kind of like put like a random setting and i remember standing up i think i was probably like six foot five and i had only been five eight beforehand right so i was like a, i was like a giant i was like holy shit i'm huge now <laughs> i kind of felt like and i stand on stilts uh so she's like, oh, no problem. And then she lowered him down, back down. Um, yeah, but that first session, it was just, you're kind of in like parallel bars. Um, and you're just checking to see that they fit properly, that there's not a lot of pain. Um, and I remember just being, you know, super excited. Like, yeah, I'm up, I'm standing up and walking around. Yeah, oh, this is awesome. I'm not, this isn't too bad. You know, I can, I can be able to... So it was really encouraging, um, but still how long way to go before I was walking without any kind of assistance, so without crutches or without cane. Um, you know, I still, today, still get, you know, discomfort when I'm walking, so it's still a, a constant process, but um, yeah, at that moment, I, I was like, I can do this. You know, this won't be too bad.
0: Were you wrong in that assessment? I mean, has it been bad or has it been good?
1: Um, I think mostly, I would say mostly good. There's definitely been setbacks. Um, like, uh, I had some extra bone growth, um, that had to get cut out. So that set me back a few months. I had to get surgery again and then you got to wait. It's like starting the whole process all over again. Um, and that really sucks. Um that's what really hurts a lot of guys that want to read. Um, you know, guys, they've been up and walking around for a few months and then all of a sudden, you know, they're getting a lot of pain or they injure themselves. And then they're told, you know, we got to go do surgery and then you got to start over. You know, it's really like a huge, gut punch. It's almost like uh, getting recycled in training, you know, like you've made it so far, but then all of a sudden something bad happens and you got to get recycled and do it all over again, you know, um, so there's been ups and downs with that, um, but for the most part, um, I can't complain. All
0: right, so where are you now? I mean, how are you doing with your rehab and is it all complete? I mean, do you, do you lead a fairly normal life by your own standards?
1: Um, mostly, I still deal with a lot of my chronic pain, um, mostly like a back injury. Um, I'm not sure if it's resulted if it's a result of my amputations um, or if it's, you know, just from, you know, spending four years in the infantry, you know, humping around, carrying heavy packs and stuff. So I deal a lot of, that's a lot of discomfort. And then my legs, I still deal with, uh, phantom pain and phantom sensations, um, which is really more annoying than, um, debilitating. Right. Um, And I just, you know, I went several years without uh, seeking any kind of, like, mental health assistance Um, until after a few years it started to catch up with me and I was having panic attacks. Uh, I couldn't sleep or get to sleep. Um, So I finally, you know, kind of admitted that... I had a problem, and I needed to go, you know, take care of it. So I finally took an appointment with the VA for mental health. And
0: Where are you with that now? Um,
1: yeah. um, I think I've been doing, they put me on um, medication, which, help, which helps with uh, anxiety, um, which has been really helpful. Um, I think in a year and a half, I've been on, I've only had like one, maybe two panic attacks. Whereas before, it was like a weekly thing. It was so bad, I couldn't even drive. Um, I would just be driving. um, For a while, I was commuting to school. I was living in Fredericksburg, Virginia, but I was going to school in Charlottesville at University of Virginia, which is about an hour and a half away. And it just got to the point where I almost couldn't even... I I would be driving, and also the panic attacks would come. You know, I'd get that you know, blurry vision, um, tunnel vision would start. You know, getting smaller and smaller, and my hands got tingly, and my arms would shake, and I would have to pull over and just kind of sit there for like twenty, thirty minutes to calm down. Um, but I haven't had any problems with that since.
0: How much has your your writing helped with that?
1: Um, I think it's, I don't know if it helps with the anxiety, but it helps like take kind of the burden off myself just because for so long I kind of just kept everything bottled up. And, you know, there was a point when I got out in 2010, I didn't really do anything for years. I just sat at home, uh, kind of like in self-seclusion. I'd sit home and, like, either slammed bed all day or I'd just, like, play video games for about three years and rarely left the house. Didn't want to ever go out or see people. Yeah, you know, I'd probably get, like, weeks where my only interaction was with, with another person and would be with my wife. Um, so that went on for, like, probably three years until finally she was like, you know what, you need to fucking do something. <laughs> you need to go to school. So she kind of like, you know, kicked in the ass a little bit and uh, pushed me to sign up for some class- classes at community college, which I did. And I actually ended up really enjoying it. Um, so that's when I started my journey to school. I did about a year of community college, uh, transferred to University of Virginia, Got my degree in English, and um, now I'm living in Oregon because I'm getting a master's in fine art and creative writing uh, wow. out here at Oregon. Wow. So, you know, it's been, yeah, you know, it's been a long, long process.
0: But when, when you look back on your time in the Marine Corps, what do you take away from it?
1: You know. A lot of people look back with, like, nostalgia at it. I don't really look back and think, oh, man, I wish I could just be back in the old days, you know. I had a lot of fun in the Marine Corps. I love I love Marines more than I love the Marine Corps. Um, the Marine Corps is an institution I could do without, but Marines themselves are just, you know, awesome people. Um, even the scumbags, you know. Um, there's a lot of those, but, you know, you got your, you know, your calcium, you know, you got a group of guys that even if you hate each other or disagree with each other, you know, you would do anything for you, for each other. Um, right. I do kind of, um, do miss that kind of like camaraderie and sense of belonging. Um, that was definitely, definitely something I still missed, um. So I, I've been able, been able to find a, a new outlet for it, you know, with my writing, um, uh, you know, in my undergrad, I was in a little, we had a small writing program and it was, you know, a small group of students and, you know, it kind of got some of that feeling back, you know, sense of belonging, um, and then even more so now that I'm in grad school with, you know, other people trying to, you know, become professional writers and taking ourselves. Super seriously, um, so we work a lot, very closely with each other, and that's good. Um, you know, when I was sitting at home by myself, I, was, I guess I was kind of feeling sorry for myself, even though I didn't think that at the time. Um, looking back, is that's what I realized I was doing. Um, so you definitely, I think that's what most guys struggle with when they get out, is because you know you're in the military life you know, for four years, you're surrounded by it, you know, everyone, you know, you all kind of like think the same way or, you know, you're you're locked on with each other, you know, and then when you get home, you know, you're back home, you know, wherever, you know, Tudaluma, California, and, you know, you're the only guy that you know from high school that's in the military. You know, none of your high school friends did, so there's no, like, Connection there, you're kind of missing the sense of shared experience. You have no one to, you know, uh, you know, kind of like shoot the shit with, you know, about the old days, which is always fun to do. But you really got to take it upon yourself to, you know, find your little niche niche and uh, search out that camaraderie and belonging, you know, just in a new outlet. You know, you got to move on. Um, And that's what I finally realized and was able to do, and, you know, I'm feeling pretty good.
0: Any regrets about anything? Anything you'd do differently?
1: Uh, I don't know. This is always a tough question. And, you know, I think about this sometimes. I can never really get, like, a straight answer. Like, I don't regret joining the Marine Corps. I don't regret my time in the Marine Corps. Um, I guess the things I regret is, how do I say it? I regret that we had to like go to Iraq because it was really pointless. At the time, I remember we are, I don't don't know what we were accomplishing when we were there. We would go on patrols all day and for no real reason. You know, our purpose was to just walk around and hope we get shot at. <laughs> and, you know, that was what we hoped every day. Like, right? oh, man, I hope we get shot at on patrol stakes and we can actually do something. There was no mission, you know what I mean? Like, I right. even I think about it now and I look back, and I don't know why we were there, what we were accomplishing. And especially now with the way things turned out, like, it just seems so pointless. You know, what did, you know, what did my... My friends die for. What did me and all the other guys at all Reed you know, get blown up for? Uh, so that's kind of hard to to reconcile with. But even then, I don't. You know, I don't regret my time in the military. I wouldn't be where I am today if I had not joined the Marine Corps. Because in high school, I just hated school. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, I wasn't the greatest student. I think I still managed a 3.0 when I graduated, but you know, I wasn't, you know, I would skip class and I would not turn in assignments all the time, but so I was like unmotivated, had no self-discipline. Um, and the Marine Corps, you know, turned that around for me, realized that, you know, I actually can accomplish things I want to do, I want to do it. Um, so if I hadn't had that, you know, ass kicking in the Marine Corps to teach me that, I don't think I ever would've gone to college. I, you know, wouldn't be writing today. Um, I don't know what I'd be doing. So, it's it's kind of hard, you know. It's just,
0: do Do you ever think what your life would be like if you had still had your legs, if you had survived the deployment, you know, without any injuries or anything like that?
1: I do. I actually, I think it's the whole time. Like, especially. In like the early days, you know, the first few years after I got blown up, I would just run through all these different scenarios in my head. Like you know, if I hadn't been blown up or maybe if I'd only like been wounded a little bit, but not seriously, you know, how it would have been different. You know, I was I was actually planning on re-enlisting. Um, I had already talked to our career NCO about, you know, re-enlisting. I wanted to go back to California, go to Camp Pendleton. Um, so I would, you know, I'd think of these scenarios, like, you know, I hadn't been blown up too bad because of reenlisted. I could still been a Marine. Um, you know, I probably would have gone to Afghanistan. But then I think, you know, well, if I did go to Afghanistan, there's probably a good chance I would have been blown up anyway, or I would have been, you know, killed like some of my friends were. Um, so I don't know, there's just all these weird scenarios that you kind of, like, play through in your mind. These, like, weird fantasies. I don't know, it's just... It's kind of like a form of, like, escapism. Though. You You just want to imagine... Yeah, I do it now. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm at school, like, oh, man, that's kind of a kind of pain in the ass to get around school, or um, I'd be able to hang out with my friends more and do more social events if i you know had more energy or wasn't so tired and sore after a day of work um you know if i had just one leg if i had just one leg i would be able to do this this and this um but i quickly catch myself and realize you know that's just that's a path that doesn't lead anywhere productive right and it's you know, it's self-destructive, really. It can re- it can lead you down a really dark path. You know, I think during those three years where I just sat at home doing nothing, you know, I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, doing these what-if scenarios and kind of dwelling, like, oh, man, I wish things would have been different. But, like I said before, you, you got to move on. You got to stop yourself from doing that. And even though I still catch myself now, every now and then, I just remember that, I'm in a pretty good place now, so it's hard to
0: complain. Well, look, I think that's the most important thing to recognize, and, and clearly, your journey has has been wrought with a lot of struggle uh, and and a, and a lot of challenges. But uh, you came out clean on the other side as as best you can. And I know that that process isn't done yet. You know, I know that there's still more uh, for you to do and for you to work on, and that every day still uh, presents its own challenges. But uh, you know, the mentality you have towards it uh, is healthy, and I think that. The way you attack each day is is atypical of what any Marine would do. Whatever task is in front of them, you know. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what makes you guys special. So, from that standpoint, you know, I mean, I'm you know brother to brother, I'm proud of you, and, and just keep fighting that good fight.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. Every day it's a, I won't say it's a struggle, but you definitely got to fight every day. You know, not just you know me or wounded, but I would say like any veteran who comes home, you just gotta. You gotta fight it. You gotta fight that. You gotta fight those tendencies of, you know, being stuck in the past. You know, you just gotta accept what happened, what happened, and do your best to move on. That's all we can do.
0: Wise words, Steve. Wise words. Uh, we appreciate your time, your honesty, and your candor. I wish you nothing but continued success and the best of luck. And uh, stay well, stay healthy, and and as we said, keep on fighting, brother. Yeah. Thanks.
1: It was uh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Steve Kiernan, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: Thanks.
0: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.